Every copywriter knows how important sales are to your business. We get paid to help clients get sales and we sell our own products and services. If we don't do that, we don't even really have a business. In fact, improving your sales skills is one of the best things that you can do to grow your business. And our guest today is copywriter Kristen Lajeunesse, whose business completely changed once she got serious about her sales process. In fact, she hired a sales consultant to sit in on her calls, to help with proposals, and help her attract the right clients. And the result was a six-figure business in less than a year. And if that sounds like something that you might want to do with your business, you may want to stick around for this interview. Okay, I'm going to stick around because I want to do that. That sounds great. I'll stick around. Uh, before we jump into the interview with Kristen, um, we just want to share um, something we're really excited about, at least I am. This week, you can jump into the Copywriter Underground, uh, which is our membership. Uh, for $17 a month, it would be $17 for your first month to just try it out. If you wanted to jump in, but you weren't sure, um, this is a really great opportunity to get in there and see what it's all about. But Rob, what do you like the most about the Copywriter Underground? I like so many things about the Copywriter Underground. But I think my favorite thing that we do, or at least that I do, is the weekly copy critique, or the almost weekly, because we do miss it every once in a while. I love having the opportunity to check out what members are writing, the things they're creating for their clients, or even for their own businesses. It's just a lot of fun to jump in and give feedback on that. But it's just such a great community, a great place to ask questions to hang out. Uh, there's a ton of training in there. Like, there's just so much stuff in there that um, it, it's really hard to choose just one. And having talked about the newsletter, which is the thing that I usually talk about that we send out roughly six times a year to our members. Yes. Um, well, I like the accountability group the most. So you, you do a great job with the copy critiques and that makes the membership worth it to get Rob's eyes and attention on your copy every week is totally worth it. You're great at analyzing and providing ideas there. I like to run the accountability group with Brandon, our community manager, and because I like to just tell people what to do and have them do it. And so that group's really great because we do monthly sprints for 21 days where you set an objective and we break it down and reverse engineer it so that you know what you're focused on for those three weeks so you can accomplish your goal and um, and you do it with a group, a small group, so that we can hold each other accountable. So that is also available for you if you wanna jump into the underground this week and um, test it out for yourself. Yeah, it's normally $87 a month, but this month only, you can try it out for $17 for your first month. So if you wanna find out more, go to thecopywriterclub.com and click on the programs tab at the top of the page. We will link to it in the show notes. Okay, let's jump into the interview with Kristen. My path toward becoming a copywriter was not direct at all, as I think a lot of copywriters can relate to. In fact, in the nearly 40 years that I have been on this planet um, living this life, I feel like I've had three distinct lives. Uh, the first phase, if you will, uh, being that uh, where I thought I was going to be a horse trainer, horseback rider professionally. Um, I grew up riding and showing horses from the time I was eight years old. And in fact, I even majored in equestrian studies in undergrad. 
And then I shifted to wanting to go to grad school. I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like, but while I was applying to different programs and and discovered integrated marketing communication, which really piqued my interest, I always kind of had an interest in how people made decisions about things and and what caused people to buy certain products and stuff like that. It was kind of always in the background of, of my mind. Um, I was applying to programs. I also was finding my way toward veganism. Um, and I was questioning my early decision to think about having a career in horses or some kind of horse-related career. So as I entered grad school for marketing communications, I also got very involved in veganism, local vegan communities where I was living at the time in Boston, and my parents were starting a vegan group in upstate New York. And so then begins kind of phase two of my life where I think people knew me more as this vegan travel person because after grad school, I, um, again, this could be a longer story, but I basically quit the job I had started after grad school because I wanted to try to live in a van before it was super cool and um, and travel around the US to try and eat at every vegan restaurant in the country. So this project was called We'll Travel for Vegan Food. Um, not only did I visit all 50 states, I went to 21 countries um, in, in search of vegan food. It was an amazing, near nearly a decade of my life uh, spent kind of doing this passion project. And while I was doing that, I did have kind of this side business where I was doing some freelancing related to marketing, social media consulting. I had some kind of one-off or part-time jobs here and there doing marketing, social media, communications related work. So I had I had been doing, you know, copywriting adjacent kind of work. And of course, some of that involved doing some writing for my clients or, or the people that I was working for. Um, so that was kind of phase two, right? I had this life as a horseback rider from a very young age on through college. Then um, after I got my master's degree, decided to quit the literal desk job that I had and focus on building out this passion project of traveling for vegan food. And then COVID happened and I kind of had a bit of an identity crisis. I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to bring in money. I lost a few of my uh, consulting clients because of COVID. So I forget how I initially stumbled upon um, the phrase or the understanding of the word copywriting. I mean, I had always known of it, but not necessarily as a career path. Um, but I think it was actually just before COVID started that I was exploring kind of what I would be doing career-wise um, as my travels were slowing down. And one of the silver linings, I suppose, for me uh, of, of having to stop traveling and focus only on essentially my career was that I decided to go full in on this copywriting thing when I learned about it. And again, this was, you know, by March of 2020, I'm dissolving my previous business and going all out on on a copywriting business. And so um, my business is fairly new. Um, it's only two and a half years old, I suppose, at this point, but it has hands down been the most lucrative career I've ever had. Um, and it's really cool that it's it's as a self-employed um, type of thing, too, because I think there's I, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and uh, on my dad's side. And so I think um, it's just kind of in my blood that to, to want to 
uh, prove to myself that I can that I can run a business, and it's been going amazingly well. We're growing steadily. I've got some junior copywriters on the team now, um, and a, a business advisor. So yeah, so that's my kind of long-winded answer to your question of how I found my way to copywriting now in phase three of my life, which is becoming known as a copywriter and business owner. So I love hearing you talk about it being lucrative. Uh, because so and so we can maybe set the context for that. About how much were you making doing the consulting? About how much did you make for the book? And then like how did copywriting change that? So my half-heartedly built <laughs> consulting business was bringing in maybe a couple thousand dollars a month. And I was really just putting that right back into buying the next plane ticket or buying food, gas for the van, whatever it was. And then the book, uh, they paid me. Hopefully this isn't, this is okay to share with you, but <laughs> it's out. It's been out for six years. I'm sure it's fine. But um, they paid me, I believe it was three grand to write the book. And then I get royalties annually. I think the last quarter I made $8 uh, on the royalties. So really, it sounds you know, like really... my royalties on my book. Yeah. It's yeah. Like $2 really a quarter. Yeah. yeah tell, us, so, tell us what the name of the book is so that anybody oh, who's sure. interested can go buy it and maybe you'll actually make $8 next quarter. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it's called We'll Travel for Vegan Food, a young woman's solo van dwelling mission to make food to, oh no, I forgot the subtitle, to break free, find food and make love, like personal love, not sexy time love. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Sorry. I, I interrupted you. You were talking about uh, like how copywriting changed what you were earning. Yeah. So Admittedly, the first six to eight months, it was a rough go just because I was learning the craft. I mean, had done a little bit of what I didn't know was copywriting before doing copywriting intentionally and the marketing jobs I had before I quit them. And in the consulting I did, I always ended up doing some kind of writing for my clients or helping them, whether it was their marketing strategy or coming up with their mission and vision statements, things like this that are you know, adjacent to uh, copywriting in a lot of ways, um, if not part of what we do as copywriters. So the first couple months, I actually started on Fiverr because that's where I thought I could get some experience that was low pressure, you know, starting okay. with very, very minimal um, and varied types of work related to copywriting. And so within that first six to eight months, I was making very little, maybe a few thousand dollars a month. I had some clients from my previous consulting business that did roll over with me and were happy to help to have me help them with copy instead of what I was working on them with before, which was really great. One of them who is still a retainer client today of over five years, which is cool. And then the big game changer for me was I was approached by a friend who is in sales for the entertainment industry. The company that he works for builds the immersive experiences that you go through through it, let's say Disney, right? When you walk in and go to the avatar experience, his company builds those sets. And so he sells essentially those sets to, you know, giant corporations. So he, I'm telling him, you know, what I'm working on and he says, oh, well, you know, can I sit in on like a sales call with you and see how it goes? And here I am thinking, this is terrifying. Like no one, I have only ever worked for myself. No one, I've never had anyone else in part of my bubble, especially on a sales call. It's terrifying. So he started sitting in on a couple calls. He would give me advice or I would record a sales call and have him listen to it. And then um, the little bit that he was giving me advice was really helping me to get more confidence in terms of asking for more money, pricing per project versus hourly. And then I decided to 
we, we talked about this together, the same person, we decided to bring him on in a commission-based level. And this is where things really changed because now he was more invested in closing a, a sales call or closing a client, I should say. And, and also he was helping me source some bigger companies. So instead of working for, I'd primarily, even in my previous company, been working for solopreneurial types, um, small businesses of maybe one or two employees. And now we're getting on calls with medium-sized companies that have 20 to 40 employees and they're, you know, they've actually budgeted for copywriting and they know what copywriting is. That was also a realization to me early on. Not everyone values or understands what it is. So as soon as we'd started tipping into that space of getting on calls with bigger companies, not just individual business owners per se, and having my business consultant on the calls in a commission-based capacity. And then we started tipping into the, we got closer to six and eight K months and then 10 K months. And now we're in the 15 to 20 K months consistently. We haven't talked about this on the podcast before, which is kind of amazing because we're 300 plus episodes in, and we've never talked to anybody who's used a um, setter sales type uh, relationship before. So I really, I want to go deep on this and really yeah, understand like, like how it works. So um, tell us like how that relationship is today. Does he handle all of the calls? Are you still on the calls? Like, what does that look like? I'm, I've got questions about commissions. I've got yeah. you know, questions about him finding, you know, potential clients for you. Let's, let's uh, do all of the things there. Sure. Where do you want to start? <laughs> well, so let, let's start basically with um, what his role is exactly, um, you know, what he's doing to help bring in clients and then we can branch out from there. Sure. So uh, it kind of it has evolved a little bit. The, the, the baseline of it is he's a sounding board, right? So whether or not he's getting on a call with me, because now I feel much more comfortable after having him on dozens of calls at this point and modeling the types of questions and even just the confidence in the way he comes across on these calls, right? This has taught me how to show up in these ways when I'm by myself. So now whether or not he's, he's on a call, I'm always, we have weekly check-ins. I share where I'm at with certain clients. He's a part of the CRM uh, platform that we use so we can see which clients I'm working with, where they are in the, the process of closing the sale. Um, and at the minimum, I'm asking for his advice on certain things. At, uh, the most involved he'll be is um, maybe getting on the discovery call, the closing slash sales call, and then he kind of goes away on, for that client unless there's opportunities for more work, renewing work, uh, making the changing the scope of work, any um, change orders, things like that. So depending on the size of the client today, the relationship looks more like he's an advisor, a sounding board, but then for like the big juicy clients, he'll come in to help close the deal. And does he find leads for you as well? Or do those come to your business and then you just bring him into advice? Still to this day, every client that has come through the doors have been word of mouth. He initially, we did have in the contract that he would source some clients. Um, and we did a little bit of kind of creating spreadsheets of who we were going to target in different industries and spending time looking up the people on LinkedIn and all this jazz. And I did a little bit of cold pitching as did he, none of that stuff really turned into anything, but what really worked was just nurturing the existing relationships we had, because even though some 
former or existing clients maybe had been priced out as the business continued to grow and we changed our minimum level of engagement and all this, these pieces, um, we still get those same clients who more former clients referring people to us because part of my job that I see in the company is to really focus on CRM, the customer relationship management and making sure that that everyone we work with feels well taken care of and like we're going above and beyond. Um, so as much as we may have said, oh yeah, he'll start sourcing some other clients for us. As we continued to shift how we were charging and who we were working with, it also shifted the referrals, if that makes sense. So so he did a little bit in the beginning, but now it's still continued to be word of mouth mostly. Yeah. I will say I did have a very unconventional, my biggest client that has come in today, it was a very unconventional method in which they came through the door. It wasn't a referral. It wasn't through either of us actively sourcing them, but it was this company that the owner does a lot of business training stuff for, in the design world. It has nothing to do with copy or even marketing. It's it's a they they help um, designers, web designers, brand managers, people like this, uh, visual designers um, learn how to build and scale their own businesses. And my business consultant is obsessed with this person. <laughs> and he says, you should start listening to this podcast and go to their webinars and all stuff. So it was, I think in December or January, December last year, or January this year, I attended one of their workshops and the person from their organization or their company that was hosting the workshop made a joke about how she's the accidental copywriter for this company. She just happens to be good at writing in the voice of the owner, but that's not her skill set. Um, or her preferred work, I should say. So I left, I made a public comment in front of the hundreds of people that were on this webinar. And I said, well, if you ever need a copywriter on your team, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, kind of a thing. And in that same moment, the the, the other person who was on the call kind of managing the workshop messaged me and said, email me, let's talk. And they hired us in March and they're on retain a $4,000 a month retainer, which is our biggest retainer client right now. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, being in the right yeah. place, just being willing yeah. to raise your hand, right? And yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's awesome. Okay. While we're still talking about your relationship here, yeah. like how does the financial breakdown work? What's the percentage that he earns versus what you get? Yeah. So we factor in when we're talking about budget, uh, before we even get on that kind of final sales call, when we'll, by that point, we'll have a rough idea of what the potential client is thinking budget range because, or budget wise, because we'll have, we'll have brought that up in the discovery call. So as we're putting together the proposal, this is the other great thing about this guy is he has, he's great at spreadsheets. So he's got everything broken down into spreadsheets where we put in, uh, we take into account subcontractors. Side note, this is the second most important thing I did for my business was bring in subcontractors. The two big things are hiring this commission-based business consultant and bringing in subs two most game-changing decisions I've ever made. So we factor in how much guesstimated or how many guesstimated hours will have the subcontractors come in for this project. And then from there, he takes 25% commission and then the business gets the rest, i.e. And then from there, I, you know, I pay myself, but I don't get all of that, that money that's left. Yeah. 
that all makes sense. So if somebody else were to want to do this, like bring in somebody to help with sales calls, maybe even to take on a bigger role, like they handle the sales calls, right? Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to them to maybe smooth the process? Some of the pitfalls that you, you know, had to work through that kind of stuff. Like how would they, how would they make it work in their business? It's really about, I mean, this is not a great answer because it's, it's difficult to suss out, but really having a good relationship with the person. I think it's much harder to start with someone that you don't know, like spend the time getting to know this person before you sign a contract with them. Um, See if you can join some of their sales calls or listen in on their sales calls, see how they negotiate and what, how they show up on a call. Do they seem friendly and warm? Are they in alignment with the brand tone and voice of your own company? Does it, does it match? Because, you know, you don't want to bring someone in who's wildly different than the energy that you bring to a discovery or sales call because it's going to confuse the potential client. So just developing a relationship with them before signing a contract, I think would be really important and and definitely checking in on the milestones or the goals that you've set. We've def- Because we were friends before bringing him on in a paid capacity, we have allowed each other to not always be held accountable for certain things, right? Like sometimes we fall off our weekly meetings or um, if he gets really busy at his regular full-time job, then I may not, he may not be as responsive when I have a question about something. Although to be fair, he's very, very good at staying on, on track with stuff. So there are some ebbs and flows with that as well. But I think I just landed in a very unique position where I happen to have someone that I knew well enough and trusted to bring them on the inside of my business, show them the numbers, talk about what I was struggling with and agree to terms that that felt comfortable enough. And I will say we've since changed his commission to 20% because he's not as doing as much as he was in the beginning in terms of trying to get more clients or even being as available. He's taking on a new role in his job. He's moving to LA. So he's got all the stuff going on, but that works perfectly for me because I feel so much more confident in being the him on those calls, right? Like being the person, like I'm learning how to do those things that I really struggled with, which was talking about money and closing a sale. That's kind of where I want to go next, because clearly you've made some big strides in your sales calls and you've improved your approach. So walk me through, like, what are the basics of your sales call and how has it changed from, you know, some of those first, you know, discovery calls that you maybe did while you were working on Fiverr to landing, you know, amazing clients today? Well, the biggest difference was in the early Fiverr days, I was saying yes to everything and not just because of the Fiverr platform, even if someone wanted to move off of Fiverr or I was getting a referral outside of Fiverr, like in my community, I would just say yes to anything, which is good when you're learning stuff, but certainly it's not as good when it comes to pricing, right? If someone said they were struggling financially or that you were too expensive, and you, and I would say, well, that's we can work with that. It's fine. Let's figure out. And then I'd still end up putting in the same amount of time and effort for you know less money. Um, so it was moving from saying yes to everything to being willing to say no when I felt like someone wasn't a good fit, whether that was budget wise or just personality wise. I've I definitely in the in the first year and a half or so had a couple clients where I wanted to pull my hair out. And now I'm happy to say that I love all of my clients that I have now. Um, So moving into the space of being willing to say no. And then I would say the other really big shift was going into a discovery or sales call, not trying to sell anything, just showing up to listen to what the person needs and being very realistic about if I can help them instead of 
immediately trying to fit into what I think they need or accommodate what I thought that they were looking for is to be just very objective about here's what I can do. Here's the skill set of my team. Does it make sense that we can all work together or not? And it's okay if it doesn't work. At a minimum, I've practiced, you know, saying no in that call, or I've practiced verbalizing the boundaries around my business. And then I can either refer them to someone or move on. And do you have specific questions that you ask that help pull out some of that conversation, you know, while you're having that with the client? I know a lot of, especially beginning copywriters, I certainly did this when I was, you know, beginning, when we jump on that sales call, we're trying to sell ourselves. I made the same mental shift that you did. It's like, oh, when I start listening, I start asking the right questions. It completely changes the sales call. What kinds of questions do you use to get that out of your client so that you can say, oh yeah, this is where the fit is? Yeah. I used to go into calls with questions in front of me on the screen, like five or six questions. And I, and I would turn into a bit of a robot. I realized this was also feedback from my business consultant was stop reading your questions. Cause you sound like a r- fake person. So when I stopped worrying about that and just had a notebook next to me where I could take notes in real time as a thought would come up or to, to note down something personal they've said about themselves, it really turned into an organic conversation. So to start, you know, I may, I may just say something as simple as, so what have you got going on? What, what do you need help with? And then it's fully organic from there. Although I will admit that, you know, I, I do in the back of my mind have certain things I want to get to. And so things like talking about budget, right? I, I don't know if anyone out there listening um, knows of Chris Doe from the future, but he's also been so invaluable in my education around business. And he says, you know, whoever says the price first wins some expression like this. So if you're willing to say your price first or say a, say a range or do some price bracketing and give them a range first, it helps set the tone. Um, but again, before you even get into that discovery or sales call in the email leading up to it, if they've emailed or, or if we've gone back and forth a little bit, I'll say, we're going to talk about you know, the, the scope of your project, budget, timeline. I throw in the word budget just to cue it up, tee it up, make sure that they know it's going to happen. Um, and so it's become such an organic process versus needing to stick to certain questions. But all that I know is that I want to understand before the call ends, I need to understand the detailed scope of work so that I can if I go away for a proposal, I know what needs to go in the proposal and their budget range or my budget range, right? Like who, what we're working with and is it realistic for what they need? Okay. That makes sense. So earlier when we first started talking, you mentioned you have a five-year retainer client, and then you were talking about how much focus you put on customer experience. I have a feeling that they're related. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you do to create this customer experience for your clients. And and the reason I'm asking this is that in my opinion, this is one place where way too many copywriters just kind of let that experience be what it is. You know, like I'm sending you a document or, you know, here's the, the call. And we could be so much better at this. And I think, I, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe yours is amazing. Maybe it's not amazing, but it's probably a couple steps ahead of where everybody else is. So tell us about what you do to foster a good customer experience. You know, I always think I can be doing more. I'll just throw that out there now <laughs> before I jump in on that. But I've listened to other guests you've had in the podcast that have these, you know, white glove experiences and they're sending birthday um, celebration notes and, and things like this. And I, I feel like I, I don't necessarily go down that road. It's more, 
delivering on time, showing up for calls as myself, like as a person and not trying to oversell or over communicate, letting them know, like keeping them in the loop on the process that we're in in terms of if it's a longer term project. So it's really just showing up as a business owner, right? I I don't think I'm doing anything extravagant, but I think the difference is I'm now in a position where I can select clients. And this is the the same for the client that's been with me for five years that we get along personality wise. So there isn't even a need to like do jumping jacks or, you know, like (laughs) send them gifts at holidays. It's really just about being able to work with people that you get along with on a personal level. And I'm not saying you have to share your political views or anything like that. It's more, you just jive, you know, you get on a call with someone and you could just tell almost immediately that you're comfortable with them and they probably feel the same way, or you present as a professional business owner and they can sense that from you. And then then they start to trust you when you deliver on time and you deliver good work and for better or worse, I'm a bit type A. So I'm kind of like over, maybe over communicating, even though I said I wasn't doing that, but just in terms of really keeping them in the loop and making them feel like I'm on top of everything. And I think what's allowed me to do that is hiring subcontractors because while they're doing the, the core research and writing, I'm making sure that the project is on track and on time and that I've got time blocked off for sourcing more clients or doing editing on the project. So it's really about freeing up my time so that I can just stay in touch with the existing clients. So again, I don't think I'm doing anything extravagant or different necessarily. In fact, I think, as I said, I could be doing more, but I think the baseline is just showing up professionally and as a real person, not trying to be someone else. That makes sense. You mentioned you use a tool to help you with your CRM and organizing your projects. What tool do you use? Uh, right now we're using Asana and I know it's not really a CRM tool, but I'm forcing it into one because primarily it's our project management tool. And I was also for CRM specifically using ClickUp, but I found that it was too much to have both platforms. So just in the last few weeks, I've been creating a section in Asana for sales CRM just to have everything in one place. And it's it's working. I'm liking using it a lot. All right, so let's jump in here, Kira. I've got a couple of things that jump out. In particular, we're talking a lot about sales here, but ladies first, what's it up to you in the interview? Well, um, thank you, Rob. That's so polite. I love hearing this conversation um, because I wasn't there and I definitely feel I got some FOMO because you start off talking about Kristen becoming a vegan and traveling the country, trying, attempting to eat at all the vegan restaurants, which is quite ambitious. I mean, that's huge. And so it grabbed my interest because if you go back to our interview with Topaz, not too long ago, we talked about uh, veganism and then her business around cruelty-free coffee. And from that episode with Topaz, she pushed me over the edge to Wait, you're a vegan now? You're trying to be a vegan? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, it was that conversation. I mean, I've thought about it for a long time, but I wasn't ready. And Topaz did it for me. So just, you know, a couple of weeks later hearing this conversation, I didn't realize Kristen was, she probably told me when we hung out. Um, but so it was just really cool. Now I want to get her book because I feel like I'm not prepared to be this a vegan. Like, I don't know what to do other than just don't eat 
meat. Um, so I need a resource in this. I, I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I just keep eating veggie patties, but there's got to be more to this than that. But thank you, Kristen, for your book. I'm going to check it out. It's going to really help me out. So that was just a really exciting moment for me. But Rob, as you were listening to the conversation again, what what stood out to you? Yeah, I think one of the things I love most about this is just how it got me thinking a little bit differently about sales. And so many of us, as we start out as copywriters, we just handle it, right? We just, we jump onto calls, we try to sell our services, or as we get better at it, we start listening to our clients. But I, I love that Kristen got herself a sales consultant, somebody who actually got into the nuts and bolts of her business and started listening to her calls, started looking at the things that she was sending out and really dove in. This is kind of the, some of the stuff that we can do in Think Tank with people as well. You and I have worked with a few copywriters doing this thing, but it's just such a smart move because again, we're copywriters. We're good at writing. We may be good at selling through words, but we're not always good at communicating sales on a sales call or doing a discovery call and figuring out who's the right client or following up with the right proposal or talking about money or all of the things that Kristen talked about in this interview. And so I just think that's something maybe more of us should be doing more of. Yeah. It's one of those moments where I'm kind of like, oh, wait, we can do that. We're allowed to do that. You know, almost like taking off Fridays as entrepreneurs. It's yeah, we can do that. We're running our own business. Um, and so thinking about just outsourcing the sales call to a commission-based consultant sounds amazing. And it's like, why are more of us not doing it? I I think just for the training alone, I would love to bring in someone like that for my sales calls just to listen to me in a live call and critique. I mean, it'd be painful, but to critique it and then help me improve and build confidence. Like Kristen said, now she takes most of the calls and she feels so much more confident because of that experience. So it's brilliant. I just want to know, like, where can we find more of these consultants, like her friend, um, and connect more copywriters to them? Because I think this is just, like she said, it's a, there are two game changer moves for her. It was hiring this commission-based consultant and then hiring contractors. And she was really clear, like those two changes changed your business. So you know, we, we can all do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think getting that kind of feedback builds confidence. You know, we've talked a lot about confidence and how you can't just create confidence. You have to actually do things, but doing it, getting the feedback, I think supercharges that, that loop of building confidence. And so really smart to do that. And I think initially I was thinking of it as a setter sales kind of relationship. And there's a lot of info products that are sold that way, especially high ticket courses, masterminds, where they have somebody who has that initial call. And then there maybe is like a follow-up call or, you know, there's this, this, a uh, very defined sales process that people sometimes go through. Kristen's process is a little bit different, but it's it's similar in that there's a second party there helping create that. And and so you know having a sales setter as part of your business could also work. It may be a different way to do this, and perhaps we should bring somebody on in the future to talk about that kind of a process as well. But yeah, the sales the sales advisor that helps you stop saying yes to everyone and and no to the to the wrong clients helps you figure out that you're not actually selling, but you're listening, you're solving problems, uh, helping you talk about pricing in that discussion. All of these things are things that we should be getting better at. And, and of course, yeah, we can practice it on our own over three or four years, but why not bring in somebody who can help us shortcut that process? Yeah. And I still have, I have more questions about it too. So I think there's a lot here because I'm wondering how Kristen positions that person on a sales call, knowing that they will 
disappear after the sales call. So maybe, you know, maybe I missed that in the conversation and, and you, you know. I think there's lots of different approaches to it. And yeah, she, I think she, when Kristen was starting out, she, it was more the two of them together. Now she's more confident she's built it. Um, but again, lots of different ways to, to approach this kind of a process. Kristen, if you ever want to do a training on how to do it and what it actually looks like, I want to see it in action and see how, how it plays out. So we can chat about that. What I also like that she does on sales calls is she mentioned she, she drops in the mention of a budget ahead of time before the sales call in an email. She mentions the agenda and here's what we're going to cover, timeline, budget. And she intentionally plants that word so they are already prepared to talk about budget. And I think that's a really smart move. It's not hard to do. And if it can make talking about money a little bit easier, great. It's worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about money on the call, not leaving it to later, not surprising a client is, that's a pro move and all of us should be doing that. Yes. What else stood out to you, Rob? One other thing that Kristen said, and she was again, kind of just the throwaway line, but when she was talking about how she got this client um, that she had, uh, she was in this group, they were talking about the things uh, that they do. Her contact, you know, says, Hey, I, you know, I've been doing this thing. Uh, and Kristen spotted the opportunity that this person wasn't a copywriter, but she was doing all of the copy. And she simply said, if you ever need a copywriter, you know, I'm available. And I just think it's a really good example of showing up, putting yourself in the right place at the right time in order to land clients. You can't just sit in your office waiting for clients to come to you. You've got to get yourself out there. You've got to be participating, whether that's participating in free groups, paid programs, masterminds, other um, networking events, there's like so many ways to do this, but getting out of our offices, away from the kitchen table, wherever it is that we write and getting out into the world and showing up is an important part of doing business. Yeah. And I also like that you two touched on customer experience and Kristen was really upfront that she doesn't, you know, it kind of sounded like she doesn't do any anything fancy like sending gifts or jumping jacks, but she delivers on time and she shows up as her real self and is professional um, and also over communicates. And I think that was an important part that, you know, maybe even Kristen probably um, overlooks too, because it, she just does it naturally. But um, keeping the client in the loop is <laughs> can create a great customer experience. And so I think sometimes we overdo it and we're like, oh, we have to send gifts. We have to we have to send them flowers. We have to do all these things, send them videos, but really they can have a great customer experience if you just create a really positive interaction when you do have a Zoom call or a phone call and when you deliver on time and when you keep them up to date on what's happening during the project. Those are all ingredients for a great customer experience. We don't have to force it into something that's really fancy and doesn't fit. Yeah, it's kind of a, a no-duh, right? But the thing is that for a lot of freelancers, it's not, it's, it, it doesn't uh, come naturally to show up on time or to stick to the budget or to do what you say. You know, I, I've worked with not just copywriters, but designers, programmers who did not deliver what they say. And it is exceptionally frustrating as a client. And so if you show up, if you do those table stakes things, you put yourself ahead of so many other 
freelancers, copywriters, designers, whoever else they're working with. And it does create that positive experience. Of course, we can do more. We can send the gifts. We can do special reach out. You know, we can have client portals on our sites or, you know, um, branded documents, all of those kinds of things that even enhance the experience more. But man, sometimes just doing the basics well is enough. It's too good job. Yeah, they just want you to do the job. Um, and oftentimes when we've talked with copywriters about bringing on subcontractors, you know, there's a hesitation around it, not with everyone. And I think it's becoming more, more acceptable and more common, but the hesitation is um, they're not going to do a great job. I'm going to have to redo everything. This is actually going to make my business more stressful and not actually help me. And what Kristen shared is that by bringing on subcontractors, it's freed up her time so that she can focus more on managing her clients and over communicating with them and giving them a positive experience because she's not in the weeds working on every single deliverable. So it's just another way to look at the power of bringing on subcontractors and having a team. It's really hard to do everything, Project, be the project manager, be the client relation manager, be the head writer and researcher and editor and customer interview. Like there's so many things that we do. And so it makes sense to have a team that can support you so you can do what you do best and support your clients and make them happy. Agreed. I couldn't have said it better myself. All right. Well, let's get back into the interview with Kristen and hear about her experience working with a team. We, we're talking about your team. We've You've mentioned the sales advisor. We've got you on your team as well. And then you have subcontractors. What are they doing? What roles do they fill? And how do you interact with them? So we have two subcontractors that are amazing. I, I got so lucky with them. And I found them just by posting on like my Facebook page. Like, hey, I'm hiring looking for some some folks that that would like to explore copywriting um, and again positioning it as like a junior copywriting position versus you know <laughs> a, a more substantial role um, and I've got one that focuses primarily on blogs and articles um, because as much as I didn't think that blog writing was something I would offer in my business we were getting enough inquiries for it and uh, that it just made sense. And personally, I don't enjoy writing blogs. So I thought maybe I can find someone who does. And and so this one writer does primarily blog content and articles. And then our other newer uh, junior copywriter mostly works on case studies um, and white papers. They are in client meetings. So the clients know that we have other people on the team that are helping out. But anything that gets delivered to the client comes through me. So even if, let's say, um, E, who's one of our, our subcontractors, so when they send us, send me an article, I do the final editing pass on it. We go back and forth a little bit if it needs a bit more. And then I create a copy of that in our Google Drive that goes into the client-facing folder. And then I'll email the client to say, this is ready for you. So both of our current subs are working on retainer client projects. Um, and then the one-off or, or, or other projects that come in, I'm usually still writing and, and the primary person on those, but I'm always the the point person for stuff that's coming in and out. And is it always retainers? You, you set up all projects on retainers or do you take individual projects? What does that look like? I would love to have all retainers, but we do take on individual projects. And right now, with the business, since we're still, it feels fairly new to me still, even though we're two and a half years in, but we, we haven't niched down into a particular market, which I know is a, a 
for some people, but we've got clients that are in all different industries and we're doing all different kinds of work for them. So since I don't even have a particular marketer niche that I'm interested in doubling down on yet, I'm open to taking kind of those one-off projects to see, do we like writing about this subject matter? Do we like this client? Um, And if the answer is yes to both, then we try to move them into a retainer. So I would say right now we have three retainer clients and then four or five kind of one-off projects that are in the works right now. Okay. And then financially, like, is there a typical price point you're aiming for with your retainers or with your projects, minimum price, that kind of thing? If I have a subcontractor working on, if I know I want to have them working on an incoming retainer, then I'm definitely pricing around that. Um, But I would say our minimum level of engagement for any new work right now is a thousand dollars. Well, depending on the scope of the work, right? That would be, that would be a very small project. Um, And I don't even know if that would qualify for retainer. It really is kind of, it's, it varies, right? It depends on what the client needs. Can we really help them? Does it fit within what we, what we can do for them? So there are all these variables. So as much as I might say our minimum level is X, to be fair, it, it could be way more. It could be less if it's a one-off small thing for me. So yeah, it's hard okay, to say that, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, one last question about your team. So when you are thinking through like, you've got to pay them and pricing, is there a percentage that you're looking at? It's like, I know I've got to pay them $750. So I'm going to take, you know, 30% more and that gets you to a thousand. Like how does, how much of the project do they get versus what you get for managing the project for final edits for the client relationship stuff? How does that break down? Yeah, I usually, so they're both paid hourly and I usually factor in because I've already done this type of work before that I'm hiring them to do. So I'm guesstimating early on, I'll guesstimate roughly how many hours it may take them to do their part of the work. And that's what I'm building in. The nice thing about the fact that one of them has been with us for a year and a half and the other one's about three or four months in is now we're learning how long it really does because I'm having them track their hours, of course, right? So once now that we know it takes X number of hours for E to work on this size blog post for this particular type of industry. Now I've got something solid that I can add to. So there will always be kind of the baseline. Here's what we charge for this type of scope of work that you need. And then I'm going to add in their hours that we think they'll need. And that's going to be the price the client sees. Okay. I like that. So one, you mentioned you don't have a niche, but I know that you've worked with some therapists, you know, Mm -hmm. as part of your business. And you mentioned before we started recording uh, that sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's bad. We've definitely worked with other copywriters who are like, Oh, I want to work with therapists. I want to work, you know, with people who are, um, you know, helping underprivileged or, you know, all of these kinds of situations. Talk to us a little bit about the good and the bad of that kind of a niche. Yeah. You know, I think I, I really lucked out in the, beyond the five or days, once we were moving past that, I got into this space of therapists just again, through word of mouth. So once I started website copy for one, it led to another and led to another, which was really fantastic as I was crafting, developing the skill for website copywriting. Um, And I thought in those early few months of working primarily with therapists, I thought, oh, this is what I'm going to be like, this is my thing. This is my jam. I love that I'm helping people who are helping people. But within, I would say within like six months or so of mostly writing website copy for therapists, I was getting burnt out, but not on the 
the work itself on the subject matter because as everyone knows out there when you especially for web copy you're putting yourself in the position or the mindset of the reader and so when you're writing from this space of feeling whatever it may be that brought the person to look for a therapist um extremely sad you know like I don't want to go into obviously we know that there are varying levels uh, of of things and 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 feelings that people will bring them to to search for a therapist so it began to kind of weigh on me a bit I was um I I may even have dipped into a little bit of a depression at some point because I was just always putting my state my my mind in that state of someone needing that kind of support and I have a therapist I think there's not, nothing wrong with that of course like I support therapists and I see one and I think it, they're so critical to our mental health no matter why you go but yeah I it was definitely getting difficult after a while because I was always writing not I wasn't writing the words weren't depressing but just being in that state of mind of someone who needed that support got to be a lot in fact I remember at one point in the early pandemic days I was working on copy for um, someone that specialized in in loss, death, and dying and grief. So I was writing on that. The pandemic started happening. And then I was also, in a former life, I did a lot of video editing and video production stuff. So I was wrapping up an old client editing a video about like animal abuse. It was just like this <laughs> compounding, really not great couple months where I was working on very depressing things. <laughs> I think this is where Kira would jump in and talk about like being a highly sensitive entrepreneur, that deep empathy that some of us, I, I don't claim that skill set, but uh, some of us bring to the table and we can get really involved in our, in our clients. And mm-hmm. sometimes taking a step back is actually the healthier thing to do than, than leaning in. Yeah. And I would say that as, you know, as we were starting to get different client, different and varied clients in and change the price point. We did start to price up because again, a lot of the therapists that I was working with were solo business owners. They didn't have a big practice with multiple practitioners. So did kind of start to price some of those out. I still have a couple of therapist clients now, but it's in a different scope and scale now. So I want to go back to, I'm going to totally skipped over this, which is unique for me because I have this thing where I want to live the van life. I think we talked about this when we were, uh, when we met in Nashville, but I want to talk about your your travel experience and just the decision to set out on your own to visit all 50 states. I know, you know, the vegan restaurant thing that turned into a book, we can, we can get to that too, but why did you decide to, yeah, to pack everything into a van and make a living on the road? It was around that time that I found those kind of lifestyle designer folks and started asking myself how I would want to spend my time. And I thought, what are things that I love to do? Well, I love to eat. I had fallen in love with food after becoming vegan, which may sound ironic to some people. And then I always thought that I wanted to travel, but I hadn't really traveled much at all. At that point in my life, I was in my uh, late twenties by the time I had this revelation. Um, so it all kind of culminated in this moment where I was uh, about to sit down at my literal cubicle at my desk job at the time. And the words for this project just, just came to my brain. No, we'll travel for vegan food. They just kind of dropped in. And I think later that day I bought the domain. I bought, <laughs> set up the social media pages. I didn't even know what it was going to look like yet. Um, but I got so excited about about it, just this concept of spending all my this. Okay, look. Also, this was before van dwelling was like the hip thing to do, and yeah, everyone yeah, was you're, on you're, YouTube. You're like setting the trend here. 
Well, you know, I still kick myself for not starting to document my travels on YouTube back then because this was, I think I, in the fall of 2011 is when I set out on my trip. So I could be like living off of YouTube revenue right now if I, <laughs> if I had thought about it, but that moment has passed. To be fair, going back to the empathetic thing, I think I would have been too sensitive for the critics of the internet to be a YouTube person or an influencer. So I think it was probably for the best. So yeah, I, I felt just kind of this, this need to give it a try to give it a go so much so that, as I already said, it led me to quit the job that I had at the time. And then once I started van dwelling and realizing how little physical things I needed to, to be happy, right? Like just everything from books to clothes and a desk to work from, right? Like once I realized I didn't necessarily need all the the bells and whistles, I started to fall more in love with that way of living, i.e. minimalism to some extent. And then I also fell in love with the lifestyle of being able to wake up in a new place every day or work from a different coffee shop um, every few days. And so it really turned more into a lifestyle for me than a like a quote unquote vacation or a project. It definitely started as a project that I thought I would end at some point. And it turned into this 10 year long uh, traveling. <laughs> I went around the world and during an eight month excursion, which was really cool, partially sponsored um, in 2016. But yeah, it just kind of led into changing how I viewed the way I was living my life and, and what I wanted to do, how I wanted to spend my time. And so at the end of that primary travel time of my life, I thought, there's one thing I'm going to commit to myself. This is the agreement I need to have with myself, which is whether I'm self-employed or if I get a, a job with someone else, another company, the baseline rule is it has to be remote, which thankfully today, to, <laughs> one of the the silver linings, I guess, of the pandemic is realizing that, hey, we can, you know, working remote is a viable option for some people and for copywriting, it's extremely viable. So um, my my rule was as long as it's remote and I can still, you know, live in different places or be location independent to some extent, then that's that's what I've come to learn really feeds my soul. Were there any highlights, favorite places that, uh, well, I mean, I guess there's two ways to look at it because the first tour was national, 50 states in the U.S., but then yep. you did the worldwide mm-hmm. thing. What were your favorite places uh, and maybe even what were the best places for working? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, you know, one of the best places for working was Chiang Mai, Thailand, actually, because the city has become the hub for digital nomads. There are countless coffee shops with great Wi-Fi and every kind of milk you could possibly want so they could keep you there and and all kinds of food and, um, and housing is uh, they have amazing kind of housing opportunities where you can sublet or rent a place for three to six months. I mean, it's fully designed for people that are kind of location independent or want to work from some other part of the world. Um, So Chiang Mai was definitely at the top of the list for remote working friendly places. I think a lot of the big cities in the U.S. are pretty good for that too. If you've got the budget for living in like a New York City, a Chicago, an L.A., There are so many co-working spaces in each of these cities. There are coffee shops with free Wi-Fi, you know, that you can hang out in, or maybe you're in a nice Airbnb that has amazing Wi-Fi, like really kind of anywhere in the big cities in the U.S. can can be good too. In terms of 
like food or things to do. I have so many highlights and so many experiences of that. It's really hard to narrow it down. It was easier when I was just doing the van dwelling, but now that it's spanned, you know, a decade of traveling, it's harder to, to pick one. Um, I am still dreaming about going back to Paris. That's one of my, my favorite places and, um, Berlin as well. Berlin is amazing for, for vegan food. I was just writing a, um, a highlights piece for a vegan magazine actually that asked me what my favorite vegan friendly cities were. So that's all coming back to me now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say because once you've, we've traveled to some extent, you know, it's, you, you always find something good about everywhere you go, you know, sure there are highlights, but whether it's the food or the landscape or the people that you meet, you can find something good in almost every place. Yeah. When, when I, t- I took my family to Europe, I think I've talked about this. Uh, you know, we talked about this for sure. Yeah. And, um, but we, we were there for eight months. We came up with a, we were trying to come up with a top 10 list. It ended oh. up being a top 50 list. And then we're like, okay, wow. what are we going to cut out to get it down? And nobody would cut in anything. It's like, there's just so much yeah. good that comes out of travel. Obviously yeah. if people have the opportunity to do it, uh, you know, I would, I would much rather buy a plane ticket than a television set. And yeah. you know, that's, I know that's not everybody, but anybody who has the opportunity should definitely take it. There's just so much, so much good. Okay. So the travel thing turned into the book. I want to talk more to about writing the book and traditional publishing, because it's one thing to publish on Amazon, whatever, yeah. but you, know, you, you publish with a traditional publisher. Talk to us about that process. How did you land the project and agent, all of that stuff. And if we were going to do something similar, maybe not a book on veganism in my case, uh, my book would probably be about bacon in every 50, <laughs> all of the 50 states or something, but um, like, what, what's the process? What should we do? I don't know, because I got really lucky that I was approached by the publisher. I got incredibly lucky that this newly formed small publishing house was looking for its first writer, author, and they pitched me. Um, so I probably agreed too soon to the terms that they said because I was like cool a book yeah and I guess once you're in there though I could talk a little bit more about that because yeah. from what I've what I've experienced in having chatted with other authors at this point because I in writing the book I definitely enlisted the help of a friend who was a multi-public multi-book published author um, for her guidance and and we set up an accountability meeting every week. So I would send her like a chapter or portion of a chapter every week. And then we would meet every Friday morning and check in, go over it. Um, we kind of exchanged our time. We'd spend the first half hour talking about my book and the chapter and she'd give me her advice. And then the second half I would help her. She was building a business. So I would give her marketing advice and things like that. So we spent probably six months doing that where every week we would check in. And that's what really helped me get the book written. Um, because again, going into that, I did not consider myself a writer. I had it, writing that book was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Because obviously, in traditional publishing, you've got a timeline. Like they had a date that they were planning to send it to the printer, and you know all these things. So I had to get it done in a certain amount of time, and I had no idea how long that would take me. So yeah, so I, in order to get the book written, enlisted the help of someone to be my accountability buddy, and then um, after it was published or or when it was leading up to being published because of my marketing background I had a lot of fun coming up with some fun unconventional ways to promote the book because what you learn kind of especially if it's your first book you learn pretty quickly that the publisher even if they're really big mine mine was not big they were brand new and they were niched into the vegan space right so they don't really support any 
financial end of promoting the book, right? And I've heard this no matter the size of the publisher. So this is not a dig at my publisher, but just publishers in general, um, where you've really got to do your own promotion of the book if you want to get it out there. Granted, if you're, you know, a Brene Brown, you don't have to worry about it, I'm sure. But when you're <laughs> when you're some unknown person that's publishing a book, it's a bit different. But I did a bunch of countdown kind of posts and videos. And this was back in 2015, early 2015. So social media wasn't quite a space of burnt outness of people getting sick of hearing about stuff, you know, uh, in some capacity. So I had, I put together like a little book promotion group. Like I had people that just volunteered to join a private Facebook group and agreed to share the book and write an Amazon review about it when it came out. So we hit the ground running with reviews and uh, multiple people promoting it just because they're amazing, lovely, nice people who wanted to see the book get out into the world. And then I also wanted to do a book tour because I thought, when I, I don't know if I'm ever going to write another book again. Like I'm going to go all out if I'm going to do this. So I, um, because I've got so many restaurants named in the book, it's not a, a restaurant guide by any means, but I certainly name drop a bunch of vegan businesses and restaurants. So I planned my book tour around where some of those restaurants were located that I mentioned in the book. And I got them to sponsor some of the tours so they would pay for like my plane ticket because I promoted them in the book. Or um, there was like a vegan food finding app that's obviously directly aligned with the messaging of the book. So they sponsored some of it by buying books that I could give away at book signings. Um, so I planned this 27 city book tour around the sponsored um, locations, if you will. And so that was really cool, too. That's good. And then when you were writing the book, did you have like a daily word count? Like, did you get up at six in the morning to put in your time? How did the process of writing it work? Oh, it was a mess. It was a mess <laughs> because I I didn't research how to write a book, like the process of writing the book. I just researched like what should go in it. I didn't have a process at all. Today, I would definitely approach it differently, obviously, but at the time, I just kind of would sit there and stare at the computer until stuff came out. Sometimes it was at 6 a.m. Sometimes it was at midnight and I was just sitting there. And I'll tell you, this may sound a little woo-woo, but there were times when I would just I would just look up and ask whoever was listening, like, please, what, like, what should I write about for this chapter? What is the story here? And then something would drop in and I would just go. I would, I would get into the flow and a story would come out because even though I was blogging about the restaurants I was eating at on my blog for the project, I wasn't necessarily documenting the personal experiences that were the core of, of the book. You know, I had them in my mind, but remembering certain details, you know, it took a while to find my place back there. I mean, the easy part was it was my own story. The hard part was how do you tell someone your own story that's interesting for someone who has no idea who you are? Yeah, that, that's a great challenge. I don't think I'll ever write a memoir. I, I'm not sure anybody wants to live my story. But um, so, Kristen, what is next for you? What are you doing? You know, in your business, in your life, where are you going next? Or you know, what's what's the future look for you? Well, I'm currently uh, cat and house sitting for my parents um, while they are doing the RV life thing. Speaking of. Uh, nomading around and van dwelling. They've got a very nice RV that they've started traveling with. So I'm here holding down the fort while they while they give that a try. And then once they decide if they, because they may actually sell their house and go full-time, they're thinking about that. So once they kind of figure out their plan, my plan is to move to France um, because I would love to return to Paris and I just really want to get back into being able to wake up somewhere new and, 
you know, feel like a cool boss business owner. I wake up, do my work, explore a new city. Um, so yeah, I think I'll, I'll definitely be in some other country, hopefully within a year from now. Um, and continuing to grow my business. My, my goal of the business is really to, to bring it to a place where, um, I could either sell it in the future or, um, just like totally go gangbusters and see how much, uh, I can scale and grow with, without breaking myself or, or the company. <laughs> nice. I love it. If somebody wants to connect with you, Kristen, uh, you know, work with you, read your book, you know, find your book, whatever, where should they go? So the book is on Amazon and it's on the publisher's website. Uh, the book is called we'll travel for vegan food that should come up on Amazon or the publisher is veganpublishers.com. And if you want to connect with me for copywriting stuff, my website is kmlcollective.com. Although we are rebranding, um, hopefully by the end of this year, it's been on my to-do list for the whole year. Um, we'll have a totally new name uh, within the year, I think. So I'm really, really excited about that. We're moving away from it being the Kristen show and more agency uh, style. So that's exciting. And if you want to check out connect with me on Instagram. It's at Kristen with an I-N, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-L-A-J. Nice. And maybe we'll have you come back and tell us all about that rebrand and what the yes. new agency looks like at some point in the future. And Rob, I did want to share with you just how impactful you and Kira have been on my career. Um, at the first full year of my business, I was kind of obsessively listening to the Copywriter Club podcast. So it's surreal to be here as a guest on the podcast. I remember um, having real moments of sadness, um, bordering depression of, you know, between what was going on with COVID, not not seeing my family, I wasn't living near them when COVID started, um, being extremely alone and isolated, starting this new business. And I remember going on long walks in the afternoon where I was living at the time. And and I would listen to one or two episodes of, of your podcast, of this podcast while I was going on walks. And I learned so much about um, everything from, from getting started to scaling. And you've just had really cool guests on. And so I just want to acknowledge and, and say thank you uh, for all the work that you and Kira have done to help copywriters like me start and grow our businesses. And it was a a really cool honor to then be able to attend TCC IRL uh, last uh, this past year in March in Nashville. It was really cool um, to meet both you and Kira in real life and to meet fellow copywriters. I je definitely felt like a fish out of water. And, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about these different phases of my life that I've that I've lived through, I, I will say that growing up and all I did with the horses and then kind of becoming known as this vegan travel person, I could talk until I'm blue in the face about what I know and could teach someone about horses or about veganism or nomadic living, minimalism, that sort of thing. But I still feel a bit, um, you know, like I'm getting into the groove and becoming a master of this whole copywriting thing and being a business owner. And so um, being able to attend TCC IRL having your podcast as a resource has just really helped me grow so much faster than I could have expected. So thank you so much for that. That's the end of our interview with Kristen Lajeunesse. Before we go, Kira, 
have you considered moving your family into a van, driving around the country, around the world? Oh my goodness, in a van. (laughs) The idea of putting all five of us in a van, it just feels like a recipe for disaster. Um, I do like the idea of van life. I love travel. I like the idea of waking up in a different place. And I don't actually need that many things. Um, As I've realized after moving, I like am rotating between the same three outfits every day. I don't need a lot. So I think it would be great, but not with a 14-month-old baby and two kids who, you know, have a lot of needs right now. So I know you're ready to do it, right? I would would love to do it, but I think my wife is like you. She's like, yeah, too much, too little space, too much Rob, I think is probably what uh, would keep her from, from signing on. But I would love to, I like, I think hopping into, you know, a remodeled sprinter van and being able to just go wherever, be wherever, I think it'd be a blast. Uh, I, I mean, I, I get you've got to make sacrifices if you're going to do that. I give up a lot of the luxury that I have, you know, being able to sit down on the couch and and watch Netflix or whatever. Now you're sitting on a, a pullout bed or whatever. But um, yeah, who knows? Someday, maybe we'll see. But uh, right now, not in the cards for me either. Let's talk about this part of the conversation. Rob, as you re-listened to it, like what what resonated with you as you heard it for a second time? Well, so at the very end where we started talking about um, promoting her book and yeah, I, I, I love just the idea of writing. I mean, obviously writing a book appeals to you, appeals to me, a, a lot of copywriters, but Kristen mentioned that she had to do all of her own promotion. I know this is a really common thing. Book publishers talk about it all the time that the budget for promoting books, it's kind of reserved for the Stephen Kings of the world. Um, but it got me thinking like, that's actually true of everything in our business. Nobody is promoting, not just the book, but nobody is promoting our services. Nobody is promoting us as podcast guests or us as speakers at events or us as workshop creators or any of the things that we can and do do. We have to promote it all. And so just being very aware of the fact that, you know, the myth of, of the better mousetrap, you know, if you make the better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door is not true. Nobody cares if you have a better mousetrap unless they can see the better mousetrap out there in the world. And it's on us to make that happen. So just a, a nice takeaway from, from that or a nice reminder that we need to be promoting ourselves constantly in order to grow. Yep. And I did feel a little jealous when Kristen mentioned she's going to move to France soon. Like I, I, I just felt it. It was in me. It was pouring out of me, like all the jealousy, because that sounds amazing um, and very exciting. And so I, I really respect and admire how Kristen has built her lifestyle and has, has really made she didn't say this, but you know, has kind of made some rules for herself or a deal with herself about no matter what, I'm going to be able to work remotely. And no matter what, like I'm going to, I'm going to do this and this and this. And I think Kristen just knows herself really well and has built a business around her life better than most. And so I think it's, it's inspiring, inspiring to see someone do that. Yeah, I agree. I also liked uh, just Kristen's entire the entire discussion that we had around the team that she has and the approach that she has uh, to her team. Obviously, she's been doing it for a while, so she's built up processes around it. She's using tools to help manage her team, but she's very deliberate 
especially when setting prices for her projects, knowing exactly what her contractors are going to do, how much they're going to be expected to put in time-wise, what that translates to as far as charging the client, how she might have to you know, charge more for it. All of that stuff is set up. And, uh, you know, I'd love to see some of those templates in her business personally, just to, to see how she's doing it. But I, I think that um, that deliberate approach is what you have to do if you're really going to make subcontractors work long term. You can't just think, oh, I'll bring in somebody to help. What do you charge me for this? You know, how do I charge? Like, you need to be deliberate. You need to be very specific in how it all comes together. And if you do, you can be very successful with the team. Yep. And I also appreciated that you two talked about the highly sensitive entrepreneur and that, Rob, you mentioned it. I, I like, did. That made me very happy that you stood up and represented the highly sensitive writers in the group. Um, so thank you. And I thought it was an interesting point about how she was working on a couple projects at a time that were just tougher, tougher projects about, I think one was like animal cruelty and working with therapists and, and really putting herself in the mind of, um, of a prospect that is going through some type of struggle and how that was impacting Kristen. And I think it's something that we don't talk about enough as copywriters, but how, how the projects we take can affect how we're feeling and our, our mindset and our state of mind and how that that's a real struggle that um, we just have to be aware of and pay attention to it because it may be something that we can correct on our own uh, if we're paying attention to it. And I, I really admire people who bring that level of empathy to the work of copywriting because it is a superpower to be able to understand what a client is feeling or what their customers are feeling and get into those shoes. It makes you a better copywriter. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, I've never necessarily claimed that's a massive part of my skill set, but the more we can develop that, putting ourselves in other people's shoes, the better our copy will be, the more what we write will resonate. Well, my last comment is that Kristen said that she she's, you know, thinking ahead. She might sell the company or scale it and she's excited to scale it and grow it without breaking herself. And I just I, I think I like that balance of like thinking really big, being ambitious, um, dreaming big, but also doing it without actually breaking yourself and and. Um, making it a painful process that it doesn't have to be that way. And I think, Kristen, from this whole conversation, that's what I take away, that you you can control the experience and you don't have to make building a business painful and you can make it um, give back to you. And I think Kristen's just a great example of that. Yeah, I, I think understanding what growth or scale means for you as a, you know, as a business owner, me as a business owner is important. And once you have that defined, then you can build the business that you want. We want to thank Kristen for joining us on the podcast today. If you want to connect with her, you can find her at kmlcollective.com, which we'll link to in the show notes. And be sure to check out her book. I know I'm going to check out her book, Will Travel for Vegan Food, available on Amazon or from your local bookseller. If you want to listen to more episodes like this one, check out episode 305, the, one of our most recent episodes with Topaz Hooper, all about veganism and sustainable copywriting, or episode 81 with Mike Saul, or episode 137 with Austin Mullins about sales and copywriting.
Yeah, those last two episodes are really good. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave your four or five star review of the show. And if you want to find out more about the Copywriter Underground, our, our private membership we mentioned earlier, you can jump in there. You can jump in there this week uh, for $17 for your first month and test it out for yourself. Jump into an accountability group. Um, you can get your copy critiqued by Rob and build your business pulling from the trainings in that membership. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better, copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club yeah, can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money as long as you listen through the whole so